tried to raise you the best I could. Kids, all the things I've done were for your own good. Well, I thought it fitting to not only introduce my mom to this podcast world and, and hear with Alex Garrett, figure why not open with a bit of the mother's role in Kids, the song from Bye Bye Birdie. So, uh, hello, Mom. Hi. First of all, happy Mother's Day, and it's been quite a day, but it's been a beautiful one. It's been a very beautiful morning. Thank you to you and your dad for making it a special morning for me. Now, just thinking, you know, over the years I've done tributes to you on Mother's Day, but now I figure why not actually have you on because there's a bit more of an audience that can really know the story. So I guess my first question is, what is motherhood to you? Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll preface it by saying motherhood for me was different than it was for many of the people I knew who had babies and then left the hospital with the babies in a day and um, had a whole different experience. So, um, you know, motherhood for me is, uh, I guess, being a bit of a lioness and being a bit of a nurturer and, um, you know, being protective and also taking care of a child and making sure um, that your child is following the right path and you can't control everything people become in their lives. But I think that mothers want to nudge their children along in the directions that they think are the best and the healthiest for them. And um, so I would say that that is something that I continue to do. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, So obviously we're in quarantine mode and this is probably the most time we've spent together in a little bit because I've been all over the place. But what's it like? I mean, for me, it's amazing living at home with you. I hope it's the same for you living with me on a full-time basis again. I mean, for the first time in in years since you've been working, uh, you know, and even you were in school, you stayed at the dorm when you were at school, uh, you know, we've really had a chance to talk, and I feel like I've had a chance to get to know who you are now and and also see that you're still the same child that I raised, the same son. Um, I think we're having some really interesting conversations, and we're getting to watch television together and Saturday mm-hmm. Night Live at home and Seinfeld. And um, I'm really uh, enjoying your company. I'm enjoying that uh, you and... Vic and I can sit at the dinner table. You know, Vic is cooking for us <laughs> morning, noon, and night. And we're getting to share a lot of meals together. And I think it's really nice. But most importantly, I uh, was terrified that you would be someplace unsafe during this time period. And I am very happy that you are uh, home with us and, uh, you know, that you're working from home. And I'm very happy that you are company understands that um you know that's the right place uh for you and that um you would could be vulnerable to this virus and the fact that you are safe right now um has um means a great deal to me and you know it's really it's fun to hang out together too but it's really reassuring for me to see you every day and to know that you're okay did you ever think when I would, you know, try and get your attention from age zero to about 15? No, I'm kidding. But did you ever think we'd reach the point where I wouldn't want you for the needs, but for actually just, uh, you know, 
a bond. Like, did you ever see that day coming or was it so well, roller coaster in the beginning? You didn't think that would be possible. No, I really thought we were bonded from the time you were born. Um, and even though I couldn't even hold you until you were 32 days old, um, I felt very, you know, I did all I could to bond with you. So, um, I mean, it's nice. It's fun to bond um, as adults um, and to hang out and to have, you know, conversations about things. Uh, I remember in the old days um, when, uh, you know, I, if I, the first time I did sermons when I became a minister, you would, uh, the first sermon I ever did, I took you up, I had to take you up to the uh, podium with me because um, the babysitter fell through. And the whole time I'm doing the sermon, the first time in my life, you were sitting there crying <laughs> and asking for food and pulling on my robe, uh, my clergy robe. And it was really kind of funny. Um, but it's nice to uh, be able to just sit in the same room. It's sort of like when you were a kid, uh, we lived in a studio. So you'd be in one part of the room. I'd be, when I, you know, when you were younger and I was working, you'd be under my feet or mm-hmm. in a chair next to me or a high chair or a swing or a carriage. So, um, you know, we all have our little spaces in the living room. Well, I want to piggyback off something you said earlier about being a lioness for, you know, during those NICU days. Tell us about that. Cause I know you had to advocate a lot, uh, when I couldn't speak at a very, you know, when I was a baby. So what was that process like? Well, the first thing is um, I um, did not know about any of the things that you were born with. Um, I hadn't heard of any of them before. And, you know, as a reporter, I really, I remember, you know, I forced them to take me into this room where the doctor came, the NICU doctor came to evaluate you. And they didn't want to take me out of my bed because I'd lost a lot of blood during childbirth. Um, and I was, I said, you are rolling me into that room. And I forced them to bring me in there so I could see you because they kind of took you out of my arms within uh, just a few moments of your birth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, because there were a number of problems that they detected early on. And um, when the NICU doctor was explaining all these things to me, I was just wait a minute, I need my reporter's pad. I need to write these down. And, um, you know, and then they took you to another hospital and I had to stay at the hospital I was in for, you know, for two full days. And so the minute they let me out, we went running to St. Luke's Roosevelt. And, um, you know, I mean, it was, uh, I just couldn't wait to see you. And the minute I saw you, I just sat by your bedside and touched your head and you were in an open isolate. So I was able to do that. Mm-hmm. And then in a very short amount of time, you know, you had had major surgery on the 12, within 12 hours of being born. So um, they put you in, you know, what we used to call an isolate, which is an enclosed um plastic container baby mm-hmm. for babies and it has a little uh hole in the side where you can put your hand in and at the time um I was friendly because of through my friend Lexi who was dear friends with Dr. Lee Salk who was the famous baby doctor you know I knew him through um my work with Lexi and I called him and I told him that my son 
was in a NICU and I was not allowed to hold him because they wouldn't let me take you out. They wouldn't let me hold you in my arms. And I told him that I was so afraid that you were going to be traumatized by this early birth experience where you wouldn't be able to bond with me. And he said to me, just go to the isolate every single day and touch him wherever you can, touch his hand, touch his head, put your hand in the isolate, talk to him, tell him that you're there, sing to him and just, uh, you know, be there with him. And that's what your father and I did every single day. I missed two days because I was sick and I couldn't go in, but um, you know, for like 77 days, that's what we did. Well, they, so, we, we have that famous picture now that's all over my Facebook of you patting my head into the ICU. What day was that? Was that the actual first day or was that a few days later? That was the second day. Um, it was this, it was really, I think the third day of your life, um, you know, because when you were born, uh, because they knew there were issues, uh, that they had to assess very quickly and then fix very quickly surgically, uh, they, they took you away. And, um, you know, I mean, I was, they put me in a room with these other mothers who had their babies and balloons and people visiting. And I laid there and cried with this stuffed animal that Dr. Judy Kuriansky had given me at my baby blessing. And, um, finally they put me in an, a, um, like my own room and, uh, you know, the midwives came to visit and your pediatrician came, and everybody came to tell me that you were still alive and that you were, you know, that they were fixing things, but you know, I want, and you know, I, your dad went immediately with you to the hospital, uh, that night, you know, he didn't want to leave me at first. And I said, you must go. Um, and so he was there with you when I couldn't be there. He was there and he was talking to the nurses, but still, you know, it was my baby and I wanted to see you for myself and I wanted to talk to the doctors and I wanted to understand what was going on. Well, well, you know, in the COVID era, babies are still being born. The NICU still has to be in use because, you know, there are still complications even through COVID. So any, any encouragement to mothers that have a NICU baby right now and arguably one of the most trying times in our history. You know, I think from my perspective, um, when you are a new mother and your, especially your first child has an issue that requires hospitalization, it is very scary. And if you are not a medical professional uh, and you're not used to that world, um, it can be very intimidating. But I think the first thing is to uh, find out exactly from the nurses what you can and can't do. I mean, I wasn't allowed to hold you for 32 days, but I could stand by your isolate and sing mm. to you and talk to you. And I could talk to the nurses and I could talk to the doctors and I could find out what was going on and what the latest surgical thing was. But I'm not sure what's happening right now if the moms are separated from their kids. And if they are, um, I would just say, just imagine that you have your baby in your arms and just in your heart and soul, just rock that baby and talk to that baby and know that you can create a bond from wherever you are. And then the moment you are together, you can make it a physical bond. Mm. And you've done a great job of that. And we still do some social distancing, but we've been hugging because we're in the house now for the same few weeks. So we've been okay with that. But um, remember when came and you were going to work during the week I didn't hug you at first right because 
I, not that I was afraid of getting something from you. I didn't know a hundred percent, you know, I hadn't fully quarantined. So I was staying away until I had quarantined for 14 days and now I don't care anymore. I'm happy to have you drugs. <laughs> well, last week I talked with Marty Brownstein about the, you know, sheltering in place for Jew, for the Jewish people. But here it's sort of like a social distancing perspective because you had to do that from the very beginning of, of life and of motherhood. And that, I mean, people don't like it now, but that was a necessity back then. Well, yes. I mean, there are a number of things. One is you had had multiple surgeries that required, uh, you know, for you to be in the hospital where your father and I would stay with you in the hospital and sleep in the hospital. And then there were, um, there were times when, uh, you know, we were sick, um, you know, what I know, at least when I was sick, I wouldn't go to see you because I wouldn't want you to get anything. Um, and, um, but also the other thing that we went through um, that maybe made us more accustomed to uh, the things that are kind of required during this isolation or to keep other people safe is we always had to wash our hands like surgeons did with this special surgical soap for 30 seconds um, and then we had to carefully dry off and then we had to put on, we had to put on robes and we had to put on gloves and we had to put on masks and sometimes we had to cover our heads. Mm. So that was so much a part of your childhood that we became used to it. Those that P, what they call PPE was something that we were in when you had surgeries and I walked you into surgical suites or we took you um, you know, into uh, the surgical environment, we had to put on these white, they, I used to call them spacesuits, these white mm -hmm. suits, and we had to cover our shoes and cover our heads and cover our mouths and our hands. So, I mean, I just was very familiar with um, the environment and uh, the need to protect other people from any germs we may be carrying because it was so much a part of your childhood. And I, I'm very honest. Thank God that we're all here 29 years later and that I can wear a mask to protect myself. Cause that's, that's to me a, a progression. Now, mom, you know, since those 77 days, we've still been hospitalized year in and year out, thankfully not recently, but I never asked you this. Did you ever get traumatized every time we go back to the hospital for yeah. anything? Yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, that's why I really couldn't, you and your dad, um, you and your papa would go to see the NICU nurses every year, which I did until you were about three or four. Um, I just couldn't go because I wanted to move on. I wanted to move on from that time period. I mean, from my experience, um, you know, I wasn't aware of, and I'm glad I wasn't because I had a good pregnancy, but I wasn't aware of some of the issues that um, that were in your body, um, and uh, there was nothing I could do about it while you were in utero. Um, but it was a bit of a, you know, what we did was we just said we're going to take care of him, whatever he needs, and that was just the end of it. And people, there were people who were giving us sympathy. I remember our our hospital nurse Ruth who helped with the childbirth came and hugged me and said, I'm so sorry. And I said, no, he came to us for a reason. You know, your father and I looked at each other and we said, he came to us for a reason and we're going to give him everything he needs to have the life that he deserves. And that was just our statement and point of view 
from the start. It wasn't until about three years later when I had a little bit of a breather that I realized, uh, you know, what a challenging time it had been. But most importantly, my heart broke for all that you had to go through. Um, all the surgeries and all the hospitalizations, and yet you were just this wonderful, perky, loving being, and people always wanted to be around you. Um, they wanted to, like the doctors in the NICU used to come to visit you, like they would do a surgery on you and you'd be knocked out, and they would come just to see how you are and talk to you because you were so alert and you had these wise eyes and everybody fell in love with you. And, um, you know, so my greatest pain was any pain that you had to suffer. Um, but you also took pain with great stride. Um, you know, like we were talking about the other day, once you had a fall, when you were out, uh, you know, on top of all the other things that happened in your life, you fell and you cut your lip. And um, I, you know, when your father told me about it, because I was at work that day, I was just terrified. Um, and, you know, you had this big swollen lip, but your father said to me, well, he just started sweeping the floor in the hospital right afterwards. And every time you had like surgical procedures, you'd leave the hospital and go to a baseball game. That's right. Yeah. Or, you know, you, you lived positively, you lived affirmatively. I and don't, I don't know if you want to answer this because, and it could be edited, but, um, I know you did not have an ultrasound from the get-go. And do you think that was a divine thing, not having it? Because then you wouldn't have to worry leading up to the birth itself. Yeah, I think it was. Um, you know, I was 34. Um, so they used to tell you by the time you're 35, you should have an ultrasound. But um, I just, um, I had a midwife. We had midwives and they were very good. Um and they sent us for genetic testing and we had other genetic testing, but I don't know. There was something about the ultrasound. I chose not to do it. And I'm really glad because I would have, you know, I, I was able to have a good pregnancy and a relatively healthy pregnancy after the first 16 weeks of nausea. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, if someone had said to me, you have a baby with this, this and that, I probably would have been just so worried, but because I didn't have that information, I was able to just, you know, deal with it when it happened. Um, I don't know that it would have benefited anybody because you got the best care you could possibly gotten. You got immediate care. You got, you were in the best NICU in the city. You had the best doctors. They immediately took care of you. And you know, by some stroke of luck, I had gone to a sort of a, um, an introductory session with, uh, your, the person who became your pediatrician and they tell you to kind of see, uh, if you like the pediatrician and hire them before the baby is born or choose them. And so <laughs> Dr. Max, I hadn't even called him yet to tell him, would you be the baby's pediatrician? And he got a phone call from the hospital saying you're the baby's doctor and then you know he got you through a lot so he's been a godsend for the last years that's for sure last 29 years or so i mean you had the best care um but i think there's a lot of things we didn't understand um as you grew that maybe um you know we could have 
put things in place a little differently. But you know what? You turned out okay. Well, you know, mom wasn't just there for the first 77 days of the last 29 years. She was there on times I would turn blue and uh, and other really big scares. And what was going through your mind whenever those mini scares happened as the years went on? Oh, I can't say anything other than I was terrified. Um, however, um, you know, it's one of those things in life you just don't quite know how to prepare for because um, nobody said to me, your son might turn blue uh, if he gets too congested. But, you know, you had a reflux and you had your esophagus had been in two parts. They did a surgery to put it into one part. And so you had a reflux. And so things would come back up. You needed to be suction. Like they sent us home with... I had to get medical equipment, oxygen and suction machines and feeding machines. And so, um, and we had to make sure the right amount of food was in your little tummy and, you know, anything could sort of set it off and you would sort of, you know, like, uh, it would come back on you. And so, um, you know, a few times, um, you were having some kind of episode and you turned blue and I really um, thought I was going to lose it. Mm. <laughs> and it's not a kind of thing where you can immediately, you know, you've got to take care of the baby. You can't call 911 and do that at the same time. So what I did is what I did, what the doctors had shown us how to do and what I had watched your dad do, because he was definitely better at it than I was. Um, he was less afraid of it than I was. Um, and I just, when I was alone with you and that happened, I just suctioned you. I mean, one time I come out, came off the subway with you and I had you in a little carrier just on my body. And I went to pick up the mail at that mailbox place we used to use and you started to turn blue. And I asked them if I could use the back room. I had the, I had the portable suction machine on me and I took you in the back and I laid you on the floor and I got that congestion out so you could breathe again. So, Well, I think I'm going to learn from this story alone that I should not, not chew my food again because obviously that still happens sometimes. Not the blue part, but other issues still happen. Well, that's why I'm always telling you, chew your food, take the reflux medicine, and, uh, you know, but... Well, so, uh, by the way, Andrew Cuomo, I feel like I'm channeling him because he had his mother on today too. This is like so weird parallel here which i thought and i know you watched it just a minute or two ago well not only that i had a conversation with matilda cuomo um in the 90s when i think it was 1993 um it might have been 92 uh, a little bit after you were born and i told her that when you were born i couldn't believe that there was no information on what to do there was no guidebook there were no you know back then people weren't writing a lot of books on it there was no internet there were little organizations to uh, send away for studies and information or go to the Library of Congress. The, the information, or I'd call, I would call the um, March of Dimes um, and other organizations and talk to their researchers to try to find out what it was, um, you know, how I could help your condition. So I said to Matilda, I really think um, it would be of great value to have a booklet in the NICU for parents who have are having special needs children and don't really know what to do or how to handle things or something to put their minds at ease. And she said, I thought that was a great idea. And um, 
she said, we'll talk about it. And then I think what happened is Mario did not get reelected or he went out of office or something. I never got to talk to her about it. So now when I see Andrew um, bringing her out, I think that's so, you know, when he talks about how wonderful she is, she really is a very loving, wonderful, motherly, and very um, unconditionally loving kind of person. So... And, uh, you know, the Cuomo's have been a, a long-standing family here in New York. But, you know, the interesting thing about it, as I think about this, is you and Pop never really uh, thought, you know, let's tell his story all over the place. And then that's kind of how it's happened. So when it first started, that people started picking up on the story of the birth. Well, what was that like for you? Well, there's a few things that happened. Um, and by the way, I just want to, before I forget, Last time we went to the NICU to visit them on one of your birthdays, there was in fact a guidebook on the counter for new mothers. And I was, I didn't do it myself, but I was so happy to see it there. Um, in terms of, you know, back when you were born, you know, I've been a journalist for 40 years and a, a, a minister for, for 21. Um, back in, when you were born, I was still an active media person and, um, you know, people, people in media who were friends of mine would ask me to tell your story. And I remember I ran into my editor at Child Magazine, who um, about two weeks after you were born, and um, I had an assignment due to them. But she said she saw me and your father out at this lunch, and she said, you must have nerves of steel to be out uh, today with your son in the hospital. And I said, well, you know, we're just trying to continue to live our lives so that he lives his life when he's born. You know, like we'll go see him later, but you know, instead of just sitting in the hospital the whole time, we're still continuing to try to keep, you know, my work going and stuff like that. Um, so there were a few things that we did. Um, we were invited onto this uh, cable show um, when you were very small. I can't remember the name of it. Um, I just remember they sent a limo for us and uh, we talked about your early birth experience. Um, and then my friend Tracy became an editor at the Daily News and she asked me to write a story about you, um, about the initial, she also had a special needs kid and she asked me to write about that initial experience of terror and not knowing whether you would live or die or not, because I didn't in the beginning. Um, and just wondering, you know, if you'd ever walk or run or play. And then, you know, the article was written when you were about three and it just talked about how you, you know, you run around on your walker and, you know, you still have medical problems, but you have a great attitude. And it was really a tribute to, um, you know, to how you grew out of the initial, um, issues that you were dealing with, um, or you were growing out of them, and uh, that a lot of my fears were unfounded, that you did walk, and you did, you know, we put a, at first you didn't walk, um, and then uh, we put a walker in front of you, and you took off on it when you were like two. And you know, um, every year on Mother's Day, I would do a race before we celebrate the day. I would actually do a peewee run, if I'm not mistaken, on Mother's Day as well. That's right. Your dad would take you for that. So, um, you know, so we did, um, I did tell the story when you were young, um, because it was still my story to tell. 
But when you got older, um, I felt it was your story to tell. And when, and you know, I wrote about, uh, I wrote a bio for you and I wrote about you and your accomplishments because you, you really had an extraordinary and charmed life and you were working for a variety of the children's charity and you were doing telethons with cousin Brucie and you were going to Yankee Stadium and sitting in Mr. Steinbrenner's booth. I mean, you had an extraordinary life. I remember once I was taking you for surgery one morning or a surgical procedure and you said, oh, last night I was in Mr. Steinbrenner's booth with Henry Kissinger, uh, Billy Crystal and Robin Williams. Um, so I don't know. I might've gotten off track from your. No, no. Oh. That, uh, well, yeah. And then, well, cause everybody else started telling the story and I know cause I've sort of become like, oh, look, another pro-life site has picked up the story and all that. But you used to get agitated at that because you didn't want that to be the focus of, of my story. Yeah, I, I have to tell you that I find it completely offensive and upsetting when they do that. When you were tiny, somebody did the same thing. They took the story that I wrote and turned it into a pro-life statement. And um Basically, my feeling about that is that someone is taking my personal story and your personal story and turning it into a political story that they know nothing about. I mean, they don't know me. They don't know you. And I think that when a pro-life um, site uses you as an example, I feel that it's usury. Mm. And I resent it. Well, and... Uh... I mean, I just got excited because it's always interesting to see your name pop up anywhere, you know. But Superman, you mentioned Nerves of Steel. I mean, that was your not theme there. from from the beginning. Sorry, but I'm still on that. It's not their place to tell our story. If you want to tell your story, you write it and write your own book. Don't give it to those people because they don't know who we are. Amen They're to just... that. All right, so Superman... Um, you know, I had a, had an early relationship that in which there was some bad stuff happening, and I took Superman on as my fictional hero um, as a way of protecting myself because I felt like I was in danger. And every time I looked at Superman, I would just get into the pose of Superman um, with, you know, see him standing there and his, we still have the Superman poster that it was a six foot, six foot poster. I had them cut it out and post it on poster board. Um, and I felt like it really helped me. And when I, when you were born, when I was pregnant, I was using, you know, the energy of Superman that gave me good vibes um, and a feeling in safety. And then I remember my water broke uh, while I was watching Superman, the first movie, um, and look, just as Superman swooped to pick up Lois. And so, um, you know, I was a big Superman fan. So when we were thinking about your name, you're lucky you didn't get named uh, Jarrell or. <laughs> <Bill. Yeah. laughs> but um, your father said, how about Kent for a middle name? So you are, in fact, named after Clark Kent. See, I say that on my podcast sometimes, and now you got the proof that I was actually named it. Uh, you know, when I fell in at age three on my cutting my lip, I mean, that wasn't like, that was actually the least venture I would have. Because then five years later, 
I started to rollerblade and I never really asked you what your thought was when it first started versus now and if you're still worried about it. I mean, what, what's your take on all that? Oh man, I was really scared. Um, and people really um, were very upset about you not wearing a helmet. Um, at first, you know, I mean, you understand that my go-to feeling with everything that might endanger you was terror because um, I had seen you through so much and you had gone through so much and I didn't want you to get injured on, with something else on top of all the other things you had to deal with every day. So at first I was very skeptical about the rollerblading but you really took to it and it became a natural way. And I realized that, you know, you didn't have both legs like I do to get around. Um, not that I get around any better than you do. Um, that, you know, your skate became your wheels, your skate, you know, you were able to move around. So your father was very, um, you know, uh, brilliant in the way he supported you in doing that. Um, I still worry about you. I, every time you skate away from this house, I worry. I can't help that. Um, mm. But um, I don't worry about you. I just worry about other idiots in the street. Oh, um, yeah. And sometimes I don't know how to you know, hold the corner turn until I cross. Sometimes I just want to do it abruptly as if no one exists. It's really bad. It's getting you um, orange patches and orange. You know, we got you all that stuff so that when you were skating in the dark, remember when you used to go to Connecticut? <laughs> So that you would be visible. Um, so um, no, I'm I'm very proud that you um, found a way to move around, and that it's been very good for you. Now, amazingly, um, right after that, the presents, you know, I mean, the presents aren't happening. I mean, it just feels like the rollerblade was the start of my takeoff, wouldn't you say? Um, could you rephrase that? Like so. I, after the rollerblade, things started to really happen. I got to meet President Clinton and then George Steinbrenner. So it feels like allowing that to happen was probably one of the most life-changing things. Yeah, I think it gave you power. Um, you know, you had, you could have been a kid who grew up with no power and no opportunity. You could have just stayed home. You could have been, you know, like stuck in hospitals and upset about it all the time. You know, you could have um, you could have turned out differently, but because of your spirit, your life went in the other direction. And because you had parents who, on either end of the spectrum, and then later Vic, who became your stepfather, um, you had parents who um, empowered you, you know, and supported you. And even if they didn't agree with each other on everything. <laughs> You know, you had a lot of people, um, plus you had a grandmother who was very on top of your life until she passed away two years ago um, at 100. Um, but it was your basic spirit that well, allowed... Well, that's what I want to ask you. Your, uh, your, our family was supporting us all the way, right? Like, what was that like for our family as this was all unfolding and years were, were coming on here? Well... Everybody was really worried in the beginning because no one in our family had had a child who had been hospitalized at that point. Um, and everybody was worried and they did never heard of all the things that you had going on medically. And, um, you know, at first there was a great deal of worry. And I said, to, I remember 
your father and I went to see my mother and my sister, and um, we we outlined our plan for raising you um, with power and, you know, um, feeling uh, like spirit and feeling like you could do anything you needed to do. Um, that was the essential goal. Um, and I said, we're even going to do a book called Raising Alexander, um, which we never did. Hmm. But I hope you're going to do it someday. I'm still working on that book, as you well know. Uh, Mom, I've got to add. So, so we got all that support. And then at the same time as all this other stuff, the Bill Cosby, President Clinton, all this stuff is happening. You're managing to keep me grounded. And so why didn't you pursue like an acting career and other things like that? What made you, what made it click inside you to just keep me grounded, level-headed and do life, do school and all that? Well, you became a celebrity when you were a child. You were, you got this opportunity. I know that everybody's mad at Bill Cosby, but at the time he was a big star and you had the, you met him um, and you were invited to be on kids say the darndest thing. And after that TV appearance, you know, people would stop us in the street to speak to you. And it was, uh, it just was the first rung of uh, your celebrity. Um, and then you also got invited to be the junior spokesperson for a variety of the children's charity. And for four or five years, you did the telethon with cousin Brucey and Joanna Scott, um, Rosanna Scotto and other celebrities. And, um, you know, you were sort of in that media wor world, you were in that milieu. And I was a media person. Uh, that was my job being uh, a journalist. Um, and I just felt like a lot of people would say, um, you know, people want to see more of him, you should, uh, you know, had a, there was an agent who talked to me, um, Oh, after then after that experience where I'm sorry, I'm jumping around, but I'm just remembering stuff. You also were on television when um, you and your dad got into the funeral of Cardinal O'Connor, who was a personal friend of yours and who had given you his rosary beads and asked you to pray for him. Um, and then you guys were in this event with President, then President Clinton and uh, Hillary Clinton and Gore and a lot of heads of state and you were given a chair right up front with all of them. And then there were uh, just an excessive amount of um, articles on, you know, the boy who's melted hearts at the Cardinal's funeral. And then of course there were some uh, news trucks camped, camped out on our block. And I was arguing with CBS at the time because they had a truck sitting there waiting for you. And I said, he's eight years old. You're not going to grab him before he comes into the house. And, um, you know, I just, uh, and then a lot of my friends in media started calling and saying, oh, can we get an interview with Alex? <laughs> you know, people that I knew. And I just thought, I don't, I just, I don't think that is going to be the route for you because what's going to happen is everyone's going to want to talk to you when you're cute and you have that tiny little voice and you're cute and you have this really little voice. And uh, you were, you're still adorable, and now you have a strong voice. But I thought that um, it would put you at risk for being sort of like a child star. Um, and the other thing is the kids at school were picking on you because you had opportunities 
but they did not. And it got to the point at one point where I had to call the principal more than one time. And um, I felt like if you were living a life that was too much, that looked too much like um, some sort of uh, advantage and privilege beyond what a lot of your peers were living, that it was gonna mean that you couldn't really develop normal relationships with people. So, and I don't think it helped. I started to brag about it a lot. And I think that was one of my downfalls even at a young age. Well, you know, it was amazing to me. And I, I hope it's okay to say that, um, you know, you were seriously bullied at school because um, you were having some fun experiences in life, whether you said it or not, they saw it. And, and I just thought I didn't want you to, um, you know, to be, to have to deal with that the rest of your life from people who are jealous. Um, mm. You well, still have a chance now to be a great success at whatever you want to do. Um, and, um, you know, you didn't need more childhood experiences to prove um, that, you know, life was charmed. I think you had plenty of experiences. Mama, I got to ask you this, because, you know, around the 90s and 80s, you had all these movies about the working girl and the career woman. and all. I mean, this was in the prime of your career that this whole thing, I wouldn't say got interrupted, but changed course. So what was that like? 34 years old, you got this career, then you have me and this whole thing going on. What, what was that like for you? And, and maybe you didn't share enough with people around you at that time, or were you always sharing your experience? Like, what was it like to have you this career put on hold for a minute to take care of? me for actually more than a minute well um i found that a lot of my friends didn't understand uh they were used to me being out there and available and fun and running around and um you know a lot of people thought that i was putting too much energy into you um that i was taking too much time and they didn't understand what it was like to have a baby who was in the NICU for 77 days and then take them home with all these medical, this medical equipment and learn how to be a nurse after not being a nurse. Um, so I felt I was a little bit isolated in that regard. Um, I did the best I could because I was a freelance writer. I started my own news service, um, which I tried to keep going. Um, your dad babysat for you a lot. He took you to work with him so I could write. Um, there was a time where I just had to completely change my schedule. You, uh, you used to go to bed um, at two in the morning and wake up at six at one point. So I would get up. Uh, so I would work from two to like uh, a quarter to six. And then I would get up with you at six. So I was working in the middle of the night. I just did whatever I had to do to get the work done. Um, you know, your dad watched you in those early years. So I was able to do, because I had to travel for work. So I was able to do some of that. Um, but, um, you know, we wanted to keep doing what we were doing so that you would have a model for people who were working and, you know, doing good work, even in difficult circumstances. Um, but, um, you know, the caregiving never really stopped. Um, and it eventually carried into my day jobs when I took full-time jobs. I, you know, the, I would 
especially because you needed insurance. I took a few full-time jobs. Um, and um, yeah, I mean. Well, you know, you had said some, some, something very fascinating just a couple of days ago that you chose to keep me in Manhattan and raise me there because you were sort of concerned about the way the outer boroughs might have perceived us. I mean, to recap, rehash that because I'm very interested to know more about that decision. You know, we worked, we, we lived in Manhattan. Um, you were born in Manhattan and we had a big uh, social community and support system in Manhattan. Even it was the doormen who would, you know, help me out at different hours, get you off the school bus sometimes, help you help me get you on the school bus when you were first had to go to school and you didn't want to get on the bus. Um, I wanted you to be in a place where people loved you automatically. Uh, I didn't want you to be in a place where you would be you would be really different. And I think we're in this neighborhood <laughs> where we are now in Queens when we started, it might've been a little different. New York just was so open and I wanted you to have that life and to have that access to opportunity. But the other thing is um, we had to be very close to the hospitals when you were young. Um, you know, we used to run a lot to the hospital, to the ER with emergencies. There were a lot of, you know, there were a number of surgeries over the years. Um, a lot of doctor's appointments and we had a, we had to be there. It would have been really difficult to, um, you know, we still, when we moved to Queens, we still continued with our Manhattan doctors, but you know, we had to take expensive uh, car services. And in the beginning when you were born, I really didn't have much money. I was just a freelance writer. Um, and, um, you know, over time I was able to, to get other kinds of jobs with health insurance. And I got full-time editorial jobs at a few magazines um, and websites over the years. But, you know, I really didn't have Uber money back then. Right. Well, and you just mentioned about how we were, had to be close to hospitals and this is going to translate, you know, segue into my next topic, which is Didi. You know, we didn't, we were, it was a tough move first time around to Queens, but then five years later, that kind of served as why we were here because my grandmother fell and she was literally blocks away from us at Margaret Teets. But before that, tell us about my grandmother's impact on you and, you know, your mom and what she was like. And then when she was like as a grandmother to, to your, your kid. Well, my mother, Shirley, was a remarkable person. She lived until 100. Um, and she didn't have her first fall until she was 90, where she broke her hip and her arm. And I, I got her into the Margaret Teets, which is just a few blocks from our house so that I could see her every day and so that you could see her every day. Um, my mother was an incredible grandmother. Um, she, you know, she did grandmotherly stuff like cooking toast that you like and meals. And there was, for those early years, she used to have you and your dad over um, at her house. Um, and, um, you know, she was just a very forceful person. She had a lot of ideas about what you should and shouldn't be doing. And she was always worried about, um, you know, those times when uh, you first started rollerblading. She worried about every time you were sick. She worried about, um, you know, certain events you attended. But um, she was there for you. 
And she loved you. And she was there for you. I mean, I remember there were times where you'd call on her when it was tough to get through to me and she would set me in my place. That's for sure. Yeah, my mom was the person who, my mom was the handler and the fixer. And, you know, she was the one in our family who dealt with everybody who had an issue. Um, so she dealt, you know, with you and other grandchildren. Um, you know, the one thing about you, you have a great spirit and I think you're very wise and you have an amazing soul, but you're also really stubborn. And, you know, if somebody points something out to you, you will, you know, you will listen to the other side because you're a Libra. But um, there's sometimes, you know, sometimes you just can't see it. And you were, you know, you were young. Well, I've got to ask you about that. Were you disappointed I didn't rebel enough as a kid? Because I feel like every other teenager did, but I really did not. You rebelled in your 20s. You got me. Uh, so don't worry about that. Um, I, I think I really paid my dues on the early end of the equation. Um, you know, I think a lot of the stress and worry came when you were born and in your early years as I really struggled to learn everything I could to give you the best care um, because it really was a matter of medical understanding. I literally became a health reporter because yeah. I wanted to try to figure out how to take care of you or how to find you the best medical care or if a doctor recommended something, I wanted to be able to check it out or look at the studies. And, um, you know, so I had a lot of stress on the early end of it. Um, you know, when you got into college, you rebelled. Um, and, you know, in these over these last uh, few years, you've had your moments of rebellion. Um, I, I was praying that God would, you know, give us the grace that with everything we've gone through, that we wouldn't have a terrible period of rebellion where you would be, uh, you know, self, you know, where you would do things that would hurt yourself. And we had a little bit of time period there when you were drinking and, um, you know, I was not happy about that. And um, that was to me a rebellion. Okay, I get where you're going with that, going with that. Well, you know, when, Go ahead. No, go for it. Because I mean, this also plays into because my grandfather had an addiction, and then my mother I mean, was an alcoholic. Right, and you were worried about that. And do you think he's helped you? How did he help you in your motherhood journey? I just want to say this about you and drinking, which is, you know, your system is different than other people's systems. And even though you think it's okay to drink, it's not okay to excessively drink because you know. Your system is not the same as the other people who drink. Um, but um, my dad, um, you know, my dad loved me and he adored you, adored you. And he never forgot a birthday or, uh, you know, he sent you a gazillion stuffed animals. You had one, you know, we had them until recent years. There was one for every holiday. Um, but, you know, my dad destroyed his life through alcohol and uh, it was very upsetting for me when I found out that you had been drinking in college. Um, and it took a while to get through to you, but I think you got it. I think so. I'm still here, thank God. So I guess I listened somewhere along the road to you, which is always the best thing to do. Well, 
you know, remember that day when those three strangers were standing in my living room, uh, carrying you in, um, and all your stuff was outside the door, your crutches, your bag, um, your uh, <laughs> wallet. <laughs> and my mom waited up with, stayed up with me the whole night to make sure nothing happened, by the they way. They told me that you ate tobacco for some reason, that you were so drunk that you ate tobacco. And so I, I, I went and I researched what tobacco does to people. It can make you very sick when you eat it. So um, I sat up with you um, for hours, had you sitting up in a chair. I was afraid to let you lay down because you would have choked on it. I'm overprotective, but I don't care. I mean, that was the right thing to do. And you stopped me from going out in the blizzard, which was also one of those eventful moments in our household. Well, that's, you know, a normal thing that parents but those are one of those places where you um, are stubborn and you only see the experience you want to have in front of you, not the danger of getting there, therein. How do you think uh, spirituality and the goddesses and God has helped you through this journey so far? Well, you know, um, I was raised in an interfaith household. Um, and I, I really, to be very honest, I did not know that much about religion. I had, you know, I had friends who had religious parents and I, I always hungered for um, more of a spiritual experience. And, um, you know, when you were born, it opened up, uh, you know, it, it really cracked my heart open when you were facing, you were my baby and you came out of my body and you were dealing with so many problems. It just, it cracked my heart open and it, it made me a different person. And by the time my, my father passed away, when you were about six, um, I had already, you know, spent many years in media, 20 years, and I'd been the editor-in-chief of two national magazines. And when I went to bury him, I, I knew that I had to take on a spiritual mantle. Um, my dad was part Native American and in the Native American tradition, you take on the mantle of the one who's passed over. But my dad had um, a legacy of drinking and hurting people as part of his life. So I had to look into the earlier part of his life when he was a healer and he took care of people. And I decided that it was time for me to take on that kind of mantle. And I looked around and I looked around for something that was suitable. And it just, all the things came in place for me to pursue, at least looking into uh, a seminary I heard of that trained interfaith ministers. Um, and at my dad's, my dad's funeral, uh, my uncle Edward had bought, brought a Methodist minister with him and he said to me afterwards, he called me over and I thought he was going to tell me I did something sacrilegious because I actually did the ceremony myself with a couple of friends of mine. And um, he said, have you ever thought of becoming a minister? And so it was hearing those words at the right time that moved me in the direction of, um, you know, getting that call to ministry. So um my ministry manifested a little differently than people might imagine a ministry, but it's been an interfaith ministry for 21 years. And um, I mostly officiate weddings, but I do blessings and funerals and baby blessings. And 
You know, I was trained in a seminary that always said, um, never instead of, always in addition to. So I personally believe that uh, the divine is both male and female. And I don't think you can have one without the other. So I think the energy of the male and the female is what balances us. And I think when one energy gets out of control, the world gets unruly and out of control. So just as we uh, acknowledge our mothers, our own mothers on Mother's Day, I think it's important to acknowledge that there is a divine mother. And it's not just, um, you can find her, find her between the pages in, uh, in the early literature, but also there are other uh, traditions other than uh, Christianity that celebrate the divine female. And they're just a part of, um, each different tradition. So it's not like some made up thing. And it's also not just a, an earth based thing. Thank so you. I think it's important to, to bring in that energy. I know that it helps me to believe in God and goddess and all there is. Well, you talk about ministry mom, by the way, and she did an unofficial wedding on zoom. So I got to ask you this, uh, how will technology change weddings? Will we see that more once legalization of it happens or will people go back to weddings what are your thoughts on that well i don't know you know i i think uh i think it will um and i think one of the things that might happen is that the way we gather together in weddings could change like maybe it's going to be smaller groups of 10. um i think that a lot of the money that is spent on weddings first of all i don't know that people are going to have as much money in the next year or so to do big weddings um and um, I think it might be a time to really reevaluate why we need such big weddings. I mean, I have officiated hundreds and hundreds of weddings, and some of them have been huge in castles um, in other countries, and some of them have been just uh, two, the, the couple and a couple of witnesses in Central Park or in somebody's backyard. Um, I think anywhere two or more are gathered, um, it is, you know, holy and sacred. Um, so I think that these times are going to change um, how weddings are conducted. Like in New York City, we're still not 100% sure if clergy are allowed to um, solemnize officially the vows of the couple with the license, the way the clerk's office is. I know the governor put forth an, uh, an authorization and it basically says anybody who's authorized to do weddings, but New York City is different and we all have to sign in to the clerk's office. And uh, at this speaking today, uh, it's still not 100% sure if it's only the clerk's offices that are allowed to do Zoom weddings. There are certain states or other states like Colorado you don't need anybody to marry you. So you can marry yourself if you have a license, but that's not the case here. Mom, you know, uh, right now, we're still seeing a bunch of nursing homes have these issues. So a couple of questions on that. Firstly, how proud of you knowing what we know now about the nursing homes vulnerability that we were able to keep Didi at home? I mean, you've taken care of people for the last 29 years and Didi staying at home was a huge thing. So how grateful are you for that now that we know the nursing homes have been a huge issue here? Well, I'm very grateful that we were able to keep mom 
you know, Dee Dee at home because she wanted that. And I worked really hard, you know, as you know, we did to make that happen. And uh, Vic and I were the primary people who were going over there and taking care of her. And you, of course, were visiting. Um, and it was quite a bit of work to turn her, her home into a nursing home because that's what it needed because she had a bed sore and she, you know, she needed certain things and sometimes she needed, um, you know, she needed medical stuff. So, um, I did everything I could to bring it home to her. Um, she had spent some time in a local nursing home and that twice when she broke her hip and then, uh, 11 years later, when she had that fall that changed everything, where she broke her arm and she couldn't walk anymore either because that fall, she fell. Um, and, um, you know, we didn't know until we took her home that she wasn't able to walk on her own. So I had to get 24-hour aids in the house and we had to just keep the house going. Um, and I am feel very um, blessed that I was able to do that. Um, you know, I just, as you know, I checked the numbers on the nursing home that she had been in the two times when she had falls, um, where she had to go for rehab, and they had 100 patients who tested positive for COVID as of today. Uh, the same thing with Grandma Mal, um, your stepfather's mom. She passed away a couple of months ago. She was in a nursing home, um, you know, that... Um, your dad and Aunt uh, Jody got to be with her and, you know, help her cross over. Um, and they wouldn't have had that chance um, if she was still in that nursing home. So in some ways, we are so blessed that we are not having to take care of our elderly relatives during this. You know, we, we are bereft at losing them um, and not having them here, even though we believe they stay with us in spirit. But, you know, my heart goes out to the people who now are dealing with not being able to see a mother in a nursing home of not being, you know, um, your sister Abby went through that. She had to bring right. um, um, the food and stuff like that without seeing her. Unfortunately, she got her out of the nursing home, your stepsister. Um, so it's really hard for people who are dealing, and then there's a lot of people losing their elders, and that's horrible right now because, especially in New York, where it's very difficult to get the burials to happen still because there's so many, so many losses, and where you can't be with your loved one when they pass away. I mean, I was sitting on the bed that's now in your room that you love from Dee's house <laughs> on that bed, holding my mother's hand when she died and talking to her and people, and it was one of the most beautiful and sacred experiences and people can no longer have that experience at this time. And also the other electronic thing that's gonna change is um, there are gonna be more Zoom uh, funerals. Which our friend, mutual friend, which our friend Amy Cunningham is kicking butt at and making sure these people are, are going peacefully. She's doing amazing work. And uh, Mom, what, uh... Has caretaking taken a toll on you? And if so, how do you, you know, you're still doing it. So what drives you to continue to do it, even if it has taken a toll? It's all about love. When you love someone, you show up, whether you want to or not. Um, 
you know, I didn't love uh, taking care of my mother every minute. I didn't love taking care of you every minute. You know, um, I didn't love being uh, afraid that something could happen to you. Um, I, you know, the worry that I felt for all those years and that I still feel. Um, but I love you and um, whatever you need, um, I would want to make sure that you have it. Um, and if you are on a path that is destructive, I would want you to make sure that you know um, that maybe there's an alternative path. Not that I want to butt in, but um, you know, it's about love. When you love someone, you show up. And that's what caregivers do. And that's what our first responders do. And the other thing that you've had an experience with that a lot of people have not had is that you have been reliant on first responders since you were born. Yes. Doctors and nurses and surgeons and orderlies and ho hospital workers who have helped you from the moment you entered the world. And I think you have always had a very deep respect for the nurses who helped you, to the nurses who deliver you, the midwives, everybody, which and you were born in a hospital, but I had a midwife delivery. Um, you know, we've been part of that world for so long and we've appreciated all the people who have helped enable you to grow up. I gotta say then, whenever 7 p.m. rolls around, I feel like every day of our lives have been the 7 p.m. cheering, right? Because they've been we've been with them every step of the way and they've been with us even before this year you know what they're capable of but you know they show up because they are they love they love their work they love helping people and you know they put themselves at risk and family caregivers do that too i mean i know a lot of family caregivers you know i'm working on some books related to family caregiving because i learned a lot while i was doing it and i'm going to try to pass along some wisdom um, but, uh, it's a hard job to do. And you know what? It means that you're going to do less of something else, you know? So I have a lot of friends who, you know, have been able to focus more on their careers and their work and building their businesses in a way that I maybe didn't have the same energy to do or time to do, but I think I did what I was called to do. Well, I was going to say, in the throes of all this, it sounds like you knew God had this plan for you and Pop, and I guess me too, because now here we are. But back in the day, when everything was running, you know, at a thousand miles an hour, did you still feel like the nurses and the doctors were a gift from God, or had you not thought of it that spiritually at the time? Well, I think at first... I was so overwhelmed by them and I was so, I felt like a child, you know, when they talked to me, I felt like an idiot. Like, uh, so we're going to make an incision in the back of his, and I'm like, you're going to open his back up, <laughs> you know, and they would explain, uh, yeah, cause I made them explain how they were going to do the surgery. And I don't know, maybe the doctors aren't used to that or they don't like to explain, but I asked for details, you know, and it was just my nature to do that. Um, so at first I was, I was so grateful for the, just so beyond grateful for the nurses because they really trained me how to take care of you. In the three months that I was in that NICU, they showed me what to do. And I really wanted them to show me what to do because I want, really, really, really wanted to take you home. Um, and so they trained me. 
The doctors, um, sometimes I had a little more of a challenge with, but I loved and appreciated them because they saved your life. Um, and, you know, they saved you. And, and that was really quite, to me, it was like a superhuman. Uh, the, the fact that they were able to do that when you were a tiny, tiny little baby, like all those surgeries and, and, you know, you were four pounds, nine ounces, and they were able to just keep figuring out ways to keep you going and make you better. They did. And uh, I mean, mom, I got to ask you this. I haven't really asked you favorite moments of motherhood that you can think of on the spot. Like what are your favorite moments even if it's not, you know, outside the hospital and whatever, what, what are your favorite moments? Um, my favorite moment was the first time that I held you when they told me that they could take you out of all, I mean, you had, you had stuff, you had like needles, you know, one time I walked in there and there was like an IV in your head because they ran out of veins. Um, so you were attached to all these tubes and all these things. And, you know, but I couldn't hold you because you were still so frail and recovering from surgeries. And then on the 32nd day, when they said you can hold them today, I was just like, I was sitting there like a grinning idiot. I mean, I just could not stop smiling. I just held you. Um, they actually took, you know, you had been intubated. I mean, talk about people being intubated today. You had been intubated for three weeks before they did a surgery to correct your esophagus and you couldn't scream. You just would, you'd make crying noises, but there would be like a tiny little squeak that would come out. Um, you couldn't cry. Um, it was just really hard. And then they were able to take that out and they put you in my arms and I just was the most magnificent moment of my life. I felt like I was a mother. That was the day that I felt I was really a mother. I mean, uh, can you imagine someone else? I couldn't imagine. No, no, I could not. Not holding your baby after it's born. But there are mothers going through that today because of COVID. So it's hard. Well, you know, you were the one that I think I can credit the most with getting broadcasting, podcasting, the love of that. Because at five or six years old, you said, you know, I know you want to play sports, but maybe sports announcing. And now here we are doing a podcast. So I credit you with the love of the microphone and just jumping on here every day. Yes, I will take responsibility for that because uh, you wanted to play football and you were just, and you wanted to play little league and you were forever wanting me to play catch with you, but you really wanted to be on a team. And, you know, you learned about sports very early. By the time you were three, you could announce every league in the NHL. Um, and, um, I felt bad about, I felt bad that you would have this unfulfilled desire, even though you ended up fulfilling it in many different ways as an athlete um, at the New York games and in all the runs that you did with your dad. However, and I was at Queens college, a couple of those things too. So I had a friend who, um, who had a son who had a kidney issue and she told, and he had two legs, but he was playing football and he hurt his kidney when he was playing football. And I never forgot that. And all I could think of was your one little kidney getting kicked by some stupid <laughs> jock. <laughs> and so I said, what about sports casting? And all of a sudden we bought you, 
microphones. And when we moved here, I remember when Variety asked me what you wanted for your bar mitzvah, I told them to get you a boom box that you could have a, with a microphone. So they got you this huge system and used to stand there and you put your little blue jacket on and your sports commentator jacket because you were calling games from the time you were three, sitting at the computer or calling um, you know, sports games. And then um, Vic got you um, a, a new camera that you could put on a chair and you could do a stand up and he got you this lighting system. And we made this sign like the one behind you right now, but it was sort of <laughs> in margin, mar magic marker or crayon. crayon. Um, it said sports hour with Alex Garrett. And uh, yes, we encouraged you in that direction. Now, and I now today I made you cry with my podcast. So that was yes. kind of different. Because you were talking about politics. And it stuns me when I hear you talking about political things. Well, maybe I'll think about the way I word things better next time. Um, one final, well, so many things. We've been on an hour 12. We can go on for three hours, five hours, ten. But I want to know what it was like seeing actually your story in Humans of New York, both the page and the book. Because I remember when, when you met Brandon Stanton, you almost broke down crying in front of him because of what he had done to sort of publicize our story. Well, I was very touched by that. First of all, I didn't, to be very honest, I actually did not know what Humans of New York was before you were in it. And then the day that you were in it, everybody was posting that picture of you saying, I knew you'd find me someday. And I realized it was a huge deal. And, uh, you know, that, uh, and Brandon had really taken a shining to you. Um, and so much so that he asked you to share your story about me. I remember you said I was the nervous one. Uh, my mother always worried about me. She was always nervous. <laughs> and my dad, he was the one who had me do things. <laughs> So, and then there was a whole nother part about Vic and like, then that day when we went to his book signing, I had no idea that these things were in his book. So it was really exciting. I felt like what he did was he really, you know, he really shined the spotlight on you and he made your story important. And I think your story is important. And I think that your story is really, and I know a lot of people who know you today may not know this, but your story is a story of not just survival, but of, you know, coming through some of the worst kind of things that life can hand you, the biggest difficulties, but coming through it with a smile and coming through it with a, I can do it attitude and always being kind to other people and always being considerate to other people and you know having a beautiful um soul and always offering your blessings to the world you know when you were a child people always wanted to be around you because of this light in you because this goodness in you and um you know i totally support you in continuing that journey because i know that's who you are and i think you know as we grow up sometimes we get surrounded by people who are very focused on work, who maybe are in, inauthentic. Um, you know, we just, we grow up, we get surrounded by people who don't really see this shining diamond within. They try to just impress upon you, you know, what they want you to be. Mm. And, you know, I'm happy to see you, you know, really rediscovering your voice again. 
And I truly believe, like you do, that's because I'm tubes down my throat that I'm ending up here podcasting daily. I think there's a big part of that. So on that line, do you think that I don't notice? Do you think I still have some traumas that I subconsciously kick up from those early days? Or do you think I've kind of moved past that? Well, I think actually, that's a great question. Um, you know, back to Dr. Lee Salk, I told him I was so afraid that you were going to be traumatized. And he said, there's a way to get around it. And ever since, um, ever since I have, uh, you know, since I've been a, a more of a mental health reporter, I've learned about attachment theory and that kids who don't attach well with their parents end up with a lot of emotional problems. But those who do feel bonded with their parents and like their needs are taken care of actually turn out uh, better. And I think that because your father and I were there and you had so much care from nurses that um, even though it was a very terrifying experience, you were, you know, little tiny baby. Um, I think that you, you were surrounded with a lot of love and I think that really helped you. Um, but I do think that we all have childhood trauma. I don't know that yours is so much related. It could be that having a tube down your throat where you couldn't scream or cry like a normal baby cry when from the day you were born until a few weeks later, that could make you want to really speak out. Um, but you can use it in a positive way. One last thing, Mom. You know, our dear friend, the late Shelly Ackerman now, I believe she called you, you know, one of the strongest women for, and mothers. And do you feel like you've lived up to that? Do you feel like her, her acknowledging you and inspiring you, you've lived up to that? Or do you think you have more to grow in, in the journey of motherhood? Well, I think the biggest, I, I mean, I love, you know how much I love Shelly. Um, when Shelly told me I was magnificent and the most fabulous mother, I was very honored. Um, she, I mean, she watched me while you were very small. She was there from the, from the time you were born. Um, I think my greatest lesson now is to release attachment, to be honest and authentic and loving and tell the truth, um, but to also release attachment because I cannot, I cannot direct your future. I cannot tell you what to do or what to pursue or who to be with or where to be. Um, I can just tell you what I think is best for you. And I can just offer insight um, and celebrate, you know, when you are doing things that you love to do. There was nothing more that I wanted for you in your life than to do what you love to do and to be celebrated for it. Um, not as a child actor, but to find your way as an adult and, um, you know, really do meaningful work. So, um, you know, I always find that the more you adapt things, <laughs> the better I get at accepting them. <laughs> you know, uh, we're kind of symbiotic. We've been like that since the beginning. We are, and it it actually has enhanced since this whole quarantine has happened. So, yeah, it's been really good to reconnect. And do you think? Because today I feel like there's a whole women should focus on their career and not having kids. What would you say to that? What would you say to women who, like you, are in the middle of their career, they have things going, but they, yes, have that earning, yearning to be a mother at the same time? What's your advice for that in a culture that says wait it out a little bit? Well, 
I think uh, most of the women I know are professional women. I, I know there are, other, there are other people in the world who are focused more on family life, but I think everybody today has to work. I mean, everybody has to work, but um, a lot of the women I know who really um, are um, successful or have their own careers, I, I especially know a lot of young mothers trying to balance um, you know, that relationship, it's hard. I was there. You have to balance work with motherhood. Um, and I remember this woman named Ellen Stern, and she was the president of W, I think it was WOR or WNEW in the 80s. I, I went to interview her and she had five children and she was running, she had run the station with her husband and now she was running it herself. And it was a major radio station in New York. Um, and I said, how do you have it all? How did you have it all? And she said, you can't have it all at once. And uh, I never forgot that. So maybe you focus in the early years of your kid's life on you know, really taking care of their needs in a much more particular way. And then their needs change as they get older. Sometimes they're more complex, um, but you know, we love our children. So, um, you know, there's a way to do both, but I think sometimes um, you may not be able to do it all at the same time. I had moments when you were in hospitals or you needed surgery, or I had to sleep in hospitals with you for a week. Um, and I was really tired and exhausted afterwards and I couldn't really focus on work. And it's distracting when you're taking care of you know, kids in everyday life. And if you have kids with medical problems, it can even be more, you know, more of a, takes your focus in a very particular way for you to just get them through the crisis. So um, I've always, you know, I've always done both. Um, I don't know if I've done both expertly. Um, there was a time period um, when you were in college, when you were in the dorm, when you went back to college, I decided to go back to college and I went to get my psychology degree. <laughs> and when you were in the dorm, I was, working full-time at Everyday Health. I was going to college full-time and I had a part-time ministry because I had a lot of like more energy time um, to Did do it. Did you graduate a year before I graduated Queens or a year or the same year? I don't remember. I graduated in 212. When did you? Yeah, so a year before me. And that was special because Dee Dee was at both of those, by the way. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I had never finished my BA when I was younger because I got a job as a reporter right out of my, after getting my associate's degree. And I was in college at Hunter for years without graduating. And, um, you know, finally I left it. So I went back when I was 54 to get my, my uh, BA in psychology. And then I went to marriage and family therapy school, which I had to drop out of when I was taking care of Didi. So I'm thinking still about going back someday. Mom, t uh, Mother's Day 2020 into Mother's Day 2021, what would you like to see for yourself and even for me, but for you as a mom and as a still career-driven person, what's your goal and how can I help you accomplish that in the next year? Thank you. You know, I, I still feel, I'd like to finish my master's. Um, you know, I'll be 65 probably by the time I, finish it if I went back next year or 66, you know, I mean, I'll, it's okay. Um, I feel it's just like an incomplete for me because when Didi, um, when Didi fell, I just never quite 
was able to get back to it. Um, so um, um, you might have to support me in studying. Um, I don't know. Thank you for asking. I'm not sure what I need. Um, you know, um, we're pretty, we're set up here so that we can all work at home. And, um, you know, we've all kind of gotten into a rhythm here of mm -hmm. uh, getting stuff done. And also, you know, there's some books I want to get done. So I've got at least three caregiving books that I want to finish and three wedding books. And uh, we will be supporting you, Vic and I, every step of the way. So, Mom, Thank happy you. Mother's Day, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you. And sharing uh, your story. I'll see you at dinner later. <laughs> I'll see you at dinner, yeah. I'm Alexander Garrett. To those who have their mom still or have lost their mom, just know that they are with us in spirit. And make sure to call your mom, or if you're you know, quarantining with them like I am with my mom, give them a big hug today. Happy Mother's Day. God bless you. I'm Alexander Garrett. Talk to you tomorrow.